Genesis chapter 1. We're looking this morning at verses 3 through 5. We began last Sunday a series of messages on the first 11 chapters of Genesis. As I pointed out then, Genesis is divided into two sections, chapters 1 through 11 and chapters 12 through 50. The last section focuses on Israel's patriarchs, that is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and ends with the account of Joseph. The first section, what we are looking at together, recounts the creation of the world all the way through to the call of Abraham. These 11 chapters are foundational to our understanding of every major doctrine in the Bible. Every major teaching is rooted here. If you grasp Genesis 1-11, through then you have a firm footing upon which to approach the rest of the scriptures. So we considered the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth. As I mentioned, verses 1 and 2 are more of a summary of what's to come over the next six days of creation. And so we'll now turn to look at the first day. So if you will, look at Genesis chapter 1, as I start in verse 3. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. This is the word of God. In 1953, Francis Crick and James Watson made a discovery that would not only earn them a Nobel Prize, but would prove to be arguably the most significant discovery of the 20th century. There are over 20 trillion cells in the average human body. I have no idea that's a staggering number. And each one of these cells is what can be described as a word. And this word is roughly 3.5 billion letters long. And this word is written with four repeating letters, C, G, A, and T. At least that's what they call them in scientific speak. Crick and Watson, these two men, they discovered the double helix structure of DNA that carries this word, which is our individual genetic information. The human body, what it does is it, is it reads the genome, this genetic information, and it, it can even write in order to make modifications to it. I'm saying this because, as we'll see in this passage today, not only is the human body word-based by design, but the universe is word-based as well. So first of all, God's word. God's word. The earth is formless and empty. The darkness and the deep waters are the opposite of what is good and stable. The Holy Spirit is poised, ready to powerfully and creatively work at God's command. God intends to take something unstable and chaotic and impose structure and order upon it. Before the earth can be inhabited, it must be brought under control. Before God can assign roles and functions, he will shape and form a world that will be perfectly suited to his purposes for creation. Something that's easy to miss when we talk about the creation of the world is that God did not have to create anything. God did not have to create an earth under a heaven that is perfectly suited for human beings to exist upon. Another person put it this way, at the core of what we learn from the creation account is not the fact that the world came into existence, but that it did not need to. 
In other words, the universe is not necessary. It is certainly not necessary to God. But because the universe does exist, we are told something immediately about the character of God and about the nature of humanity, the nature of us. God did not make the universe because there was any incompleteness in him. God doesn't need the universe to be who he is or to be satisfied or to add anything to himself. He is not dependent upon his creation, though we are completely dependent upon him. When it comes right down to it, we are unnecessary to God. We give God nothing that he does not already possess. Yet, he gives us everything. What does this tell us? Well, it tells us that God is gratuitous. He's gratuitous. By nature, he gives simply to give. And we are the recipients. Since the giver of a gift should receive thanks, a fundamental position we should have in relation to reality is to offer praise and thanksgiving. We should view creation as a gift. The first thing that the Lord sets out to do, therefore, is to remedy the darkness. And so he speaks, let there be light. And there was light. Before we even discuss this matter of light, we need to consider the way in which God brought the light about. It's the way in which he will bring forth everything in creation. That is, God creates through his word. Now what this does is it sets a pattern. Not only will we see God speaking and that being repeated on each of the days of creation, this sets a pattern that will be repeated throughout the rest of Scripture. God is the speaking God. Since God himself places so much emphasis on the importance of his word, we should not miss what we learn about his word from our passage today. So first of all, God's word is powerful. His word is powerful. The fact is, God's word possesses all the power of God himself. And God exercises that power through his word. He speaks and dispels the darkness. Of course, this is very real darkness. It's deep darkness. Darkness is the absence of light. You don't have to do anything in a dark room to keep the darkness there. But if you want light in that room, you have to flip on the light switch. And the second the light turns on, the darkness is gone. The way, therefore, that God does something about the darkness is to introduce light. And that light, we're told, was created by him. The power of God's word is demonstrated and that something, light, came from nothing. When God creates, he does so without pre-existing material. Only God has the power to bring something out of nothing. When God creates, he also brings order out of chaos. The power to bring into being that which does not exist and to bring stability to that which is unstable is expressed through God's word. His word is the means of creation. God's spoken word reveals God's power. To possess all power, as God does, is called omnipotence. We talked about that word before, omnipotence. Since God is all-powerful, he is the most powerful. There's nothing in the universe that is his peer or his competitor. It is through his word that God acts. His word and his deeds, they work together to reveal his omnipotence. And since God speaks with all power, he speaks authoritatively. God's word carries God's authority. 
This is foundational stuff here. Because God spoke the universe into existence, we can say that all of reality is actually word-based. Words are specific. They are directed. And this is the exact opposite of, of Darwin's theory of evolution. Darwinian evolution, we are told, depends upon millions of years plus chance mutations. It does not even pretend to know where life came from in the first place. They don't have an answer for that. And out of this supposed undirected, random, accidental process arose the complexity and structure and order of creation. Thankfully, we don't have to take this illogical position. We can simply believe that what does exist came into existence at the direction of an all-powerful God who spoke words. Creating and directing creation. Through his word that he spoke, directing creation to a place of complexity and structure and stability. As one Christian scientist noted, the idea that the universe did not come to be without the input of information and energy from an intelligent source has been amply confirmed by scientific discovery. It takes much more faith and blind faith at that to believe everything that exists is an accident. It's much more faith to believe that, rather than believing everything that exists was spoken into being by an all-powerful creator. God's word is also decisive. That is, it produces a definite result. On the first day, the result was light. Exactly what was needed as a first step towards making the earth inhabitable. Though our words are often spoken without much thought, or in haste, or to no purpose, God never speaks in this way. There is a reason for everything that God says. There is a purpose for each word that he utters during the creation week. God speaks with a goal in mind. What if our words were always spoken with such intentionality? Jesus admonishes us to be plain and clear. When we do open our mouths, let your yes be yes and your no be no. What if we always spoke when speaking was necessary and not just in order to fill the air with words. Proverbs 10.19 states, When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. What if we spoke only to build others up and never to tear them down? Ephesians 4.29, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment. What if we spoke only after careful deliberation, because, as we see from this passage, words matter. James 1.19, everyone must be quick to hear and slow to speak. God's word is decisive. Whatever God determines to do, he accomplishes. This means that the means by which he has determined to accomplish his will is his word. Let me say that again. God accomplishes his will through his word. Therefore, we see that God's word is always an expression of his will. Simple enough. God desired light to push back the darkness, and so he called light into being. All that is meant by God's will is God's desire. That's what we mean when we say God's will. What does God want? That is his will. We know God's will only because he has spoken it 
in his word. You want to know what God desires of you? Go to his word to find out. This is where God speaks. And contained in his words are his desires for creation and for the human beings that inhabit it. And yes, for you and for me. And the same way that God's word produced a definite result on the first day, his word will produce definite results in your life. However, unlike at creation, when nothing had a choice, you in fact do have a choice. Only you can decide if you will cooperate with God by embracing his word. His word will become a decisive factor in your life anytime you choose to believe it. And laying hold of God's word by faith, you will act. Because the Bible never separates faith from action. Faith precedes action, yes, comes before it, but it is not faith if action does not follow. As James 2.26 says, faith without works is dead. Obedience is the result of faith. So do you desire God's will to be done in you and through you? Then believe his words so that it might have a decisive effect in your life. Live out what you believe so that the faith you claim to have does not just stop in your head, but impacts your heart. It manifests itself in what you actually do. God spoke at creation. He speaks now. His word is still decisive. God's word is also divisive. What I mean by that is that God's word brings about division. Look at the second part of verse 4, Genesis 1. God separated the light from the darkness. In other words, there was a division between the light and the dark. This is the first separation of three separations on the first three days of creation. Separation, as it's used in the creation account, means to assign each part to its proper sphere. In fact, the verb to separate is used five times in chapter 1. God's word is divisive. It's divisive at the beginning. But it's also divisive in its instructions to the Israelites in the Old Testament. Think about it. There was to be a division between how, how they lived versus how the pagans around them lived. The Israelites were to be separate in what they ate and how they dressed. Of course, in who and how they worshipped. Even in how they worked and rested. In a similar way, instructions in the New Testament to Christians, to us, tell us to be separate in our words and behavior from those who do not follow Jesus. Listen to 2 Corinthians 6, 17. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. So this idea of separation is rooted in Genesis chapter 1. God separated the light from the darkness, the order from the chaos. He makes distinctions in order to use that which he has set aside for himself. The separation serves a purpose. The darkness in and of itself, is not evil. It's not as if there's something especially sinister about the nighttime and especially holy about the day. God created both the darkness and the light. The darkness, keep in mind, is simply an absence of light. So in the Bible, the darkness represents that which is absent of God. Not that darkness itself is absent of God. The divisive factor of God's word tells us something else. 
It tells us that God is judge. What does a judge do? But make verdicts between that which is right and that which is wrong. A judge's verdict, therefore, is a type of separation. God is the lawgiver. His laws make distinctions between the holy and the unholy, between the morally right and the morally wrong, between what's righteous and what's evil, between the good and the bad. As we grow in spiritual maturity, we actually grow in our ability to make separations. Listen to this, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. New Testament book of Hebrews chapter 5. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. Solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. What this tells us is that as you grow in your ability to hear and receive God's word, you are better able to discern between that which pleases God and that which does not. God's word is divisive because it brings discernment. As you grow more and more accustomed to his word, you are better equipped to discern, to separate out that which is pleasing to him and that which is not pleasing to him. The key is God's word. It brings necessary separation. Why did God use words to create? I mean, think about it. He's God. He could have just thought creation into being, right? He's God. He can do whatever he wants to do. But he didn't think creation into being. He used his words. Thoughts are private. If you want, you can keep your thoughts to yourself. No one ever has to know what's going on in your own head. They're entirely your thoughts. Words, however, they become public the moment that you share them. Anytime you speak what's in your mind, you are including others. By their very nature, words are a public affair. So what does communication do? Well, communication, it implies relationship and community. You hear the word community and communication. At the very outset of creation, we behold a God who is communal, who desires relationship. He's a God who uses his words to relate to his people. God is a speaking God. He speaks through words that have been spoken and written down in the Bible that you're holding in your hands. Are you reading it? Are you allowing him to communicate with you? That's God's word. The second thing we see in this passage is God's light. God's light. Again, the light does not eradicate the darkness. It diminishes it. At the end of each day, there is once again night. There's once again darkness. In creating light and separating it from the darkness, God instituted the first day. What is a day? Well, it's a measurement of time. It is 24 hours long, roughly divided in half between light and darkness. The Jewish people, they began a new day with the setting of the sun. They do this because of verse 5. And there was evening and there was morning one day. The text says the evening precedes the morning. And so in Hebrew thinking, the day begins at sunset and ends at sunset. If you've ever known a Jewish family who celebrates the Sabbath, they begin the Sabbath on Friday evening. That's the reason, because Saturday begins on Friday evening. Now, of course, we mark the beginning of the day in the middle of the night at 12 o'clock a.m. 
It's not so much important when the day begins and ends within the particular cultural context. What is important is that God instituted 12 hours of light and 12 hours of darkness to be one day. Every society in the world from ancient times until now follows this pattern. They have no choice. The reason is because the earth makes a complete rotation every 24 hours. And the reason the earth does this is because God created the earth to do so. The ancient Hebrew reader did not know what modern science has taught us. They did not know about the earth spinning on its axis, about the earth rotating around the sun. They did know that there is a separation each day between the light and the darkness. Science is completely compatible with Genesis chapter 1, verse 5. The first day, there is one 24-hour day composed of light and darkness because God willed it to be so. If the in the beginning of verse 1 marked the creation of time, which I believe it did, then the first day is when we said the creation of the means to measure time. The creation of the means to measure time. Now, perhaps you are astute and you are already thinking ahead and you're saying to yourself, wait a minute, because you realize what's to come. The sun's not created to the fourth day. So where's the light coming from on the first day? That's a great question. And I'm glad you're asking. Because the answer gives us greater insight into the source of this light. If the source on the first day is not the sun, then what is the source of this first day light? Well, the source is God himself. This is not explicitly stated in verses 3 through 5. But we hear that God himself is the source of light in other places in Scripture. Psalm 142 says, O Lord, you cover yourself with light as with a cloak. 1 John 1, 5 in the New Testament reads, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So the very nature of God is to shine. Revelation 22, 5 at the end of the book, God himself will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. God will illuminate his people because the light that comes forth from him will be what shines upon them one day. In essence, this light that shines forth on the first day is the outshining of the glory of God. 1 Timothy 6.16 tells us that God dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. But because of the, the glorious splendor of the light that shines forth from God himself, no one can look directly upon him. But we can see in the light that his glory illuminates. You can't stare directly at the sun, but you see everything else by the light of the sun. You cannot look directly at God, but you see everything else by his light. And this is the light that shone forth on the first day of creation. Now, we, we probably should try to figure out how the light that was not the sun shone before the light that was produced by the sun. The reason is because it's not necessary to figure this out because that was not the intention of Moses, the writer, or of God, the ultimate author of Genesis. It was not their intention to explain it. The point that's being made in the text is that the light of God precedes all other light. Every other light finds its source in him. Without God's light, there is no light. As C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because I see everything else by it. As the sun illuminates 
the earth so, so that we may see physically the light of God's splendor illuminates reality so that we might see spiritually. As I read from 1 John 1, 5, in God there is no darkness at all. The Apostle John, in writing that, he's looking back at the first day of creation. He is communicating that God's light is more than just physical, it's spiritual. Just as there is nothing spiritually dark or evil in God, so nothing that is spiritually dark or evil can stand in his light. Now, I'm sure you've heard the saying, sunlight is the best disinfectant. Have you heard that before? I shared that with the group one time, and they looked at me like, like they had no idea what I was talking about. Sunlight is the best disinfectant. A lot of you understand that because you've probably cleaned up and dry before. The sun's rays are the best way to cleanse those clothes from germs. In the same way, the light of God is the best spiritual disinfectant. When it shines, the darkness flees. As we see in verse 3, there's this direct relationship between the light of God and the word of God. And we can trace this relationship that's established here through the rest of scripture. Wherever God's word is spoken, it brings light. After the Israelites sinned by making the golden calf, remember that? What did Moses do? Well, in righteous anger, he threw down and broke the first two tablets containing the Ten Commandments. He then went back up Mount Sinai in order to receive a second set. We read this in Exodus 34, 29. It came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him. So where is this light that is shining off of Moses' face coming from? It sources God. Because Moses had spent time in the presence of God, the light of God was still reflecting off of his face. But the longer he was away from God's presence, the more that light began to fade. What I want you to hear is this. Because Moses received the word of God and was commissioned to speak the word of God, he literally shone with the light of God. When God speaks, there is light. When we spend time in God's word, listening to him speak, we are opening up ourselves to his light. After all, when God speaks, light is the result. If you read the Bible or hear the Bible with a heart that is closed, you are choosing to keep the light out. You're closing your bedroom door so that the hall light can no longer shine in, plunging your bedroom into darkness. Psalm 36, 9 says, in your light, we see light. In your light, God, we see light. If God is illuminating his word to you, then you are hearing it with his light shining upon it. If you don't see with the light of God, then you're reading in the dark. Anytime you hear God's word and understand it, it is because in his light, you see light. Just like only the light of God pushed back the darkness of creation, so only the light of God will clear away whatever lies you have believed. And we've all believed lies. They're all there. How do we see them? Will you want to live better? Then believe better. We act on what we believe. Believing lies will keep you in the dark. But it's God's word, the Bible, that will give you spiritual sight. 
if you've ever read a verse or a passage that you've read a dozen times before. But this time, the words grip your hearts and you suddenly understand them as you never have before. Then the light of God has shown in darkness. If you want spiritual understanding, which leads to faith, which leads to a life that's pleasing to God, then go to God's Word. Outside of God's Word, outside of what God has spoken, is darkness. Now, there's obviously all sorts of knowledge that we can obtain apart from God's Word, but there's no spiritual knowledge that we can obtain apart from His Word. If you want to know who God is, if you want to know what He desires, if you want to know what God is up to, then you must receive light from his word. God called the light good. Notice in verse 4 that he did not include the dark in his evaluation. No, no, he called the light good. The light is good because it accomplishes its purpose of dispelling the darkness. When God declares something good, it's because it is doing what he created and called it to do. God is evaluating the results of the spoken word, and he declares it's good in his sight. His word produced light, which is exactly what God intended. It's like if you give a contractor the plans for your new house. You have an architect draw them up. You say, here are the plans. He begins to build. You go and you check on the progress, and you see that the contractor is, in fact, following the plan. It's good in your sight because the house is turning out like you intended You see, it goes back to what the text is focused on. God creates the structure, but the focus is on the function. What is it going to do? To what purpose did God create light? Well, in order to diminish the darkness. When God declares something good, it brings him joy. When you're living out the reason that you were created and the reason that you were called, God declares it is good. When you live your life in such a way that the darkness you encounter is dispelled, God declares it is good. Your faithful witness brings him joy. It's good. When God spoke light into being, he was also revealing something about himself. He was revealing his nature. What do I mean by this? Well, he's not a God who operates in the darkness. He he does not hide himself. The Lord wants to be known. He desires that we see who he is and that we understand what he has done and what he's going to do. God wants us to understand those things. Yes, I know. Sometimes God's ways are a mystery. And sometimes it feels like that God is concealing himself. Yet, in general, we know that God wants to make himself known. How? Because he took the initiative to create light, and to declare it good, he reveals himself to you. God's word and God's light, together they bring life. God's word and God's light bring life. Verse 5, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. What's God doing here? Well, he's giving names to the period of daylight and to the period of darkness that occur each day. He's naming them. Though darkness does represent evil in the Bible, by naming the period of darkness night, the Lord is demonstrating that a time period 
which is absent of light, is not evil. There's nothing ungodly, there's nothing sinister about the nighttime. This is the first time something is named. But giving names is a recurring activity in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. In the ancient world, a name was more than a title. A name was very significant. We've talked about this before. If something was given a name, it was considered to exist. If something was not given a name, it was considered non-existent. And I know this is hard for us to understand, but it was an ancient belief in nearly every culture. Now, surely something exists if God has created it, whether it's named or not. The light and the dark, they existed apart from having the names day and night. But what is written in Genesis was not written to us, even though it was written for us. And I hope you hear the distinction there. The ancient Hebrew reader of Genesis understood that God was, first of all, letting everyone know that by naming the light and naming the darkness, he was confirming their real existence. Why does this matter? Well, it matters because it tells us that God is not only the creator of something out of nothing, he is also the one naming that which he has created. And whoever named something was considered the one who had authority over it. We do something similar when we name babies. As a parent, it is your right and yours alone to name your child. Somebody else doesn't get to name your child. You created that child, in a sense. You have authority over that child. And by naming your baby, you are, at least by implication, claiming authority over him or her. By naming the day and night, God is claiming the day and night. They belong to him. They belong to him. And there was evening and morning one day. The question arises, and it's a matter of much debate among Christians. Are the days in Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, are they 24-hour days? Or does the word day represent a longer period of time? For example, does one day represent thousands of years or more? If this is so, of course, that would mean that creation did not occur in six 24-hour days, but in six ages of time with each age being of indeterminate length. Does it matter? Well, yes, it matters as far as dating the age of the earth. Let me briefly tell you why I think the first day and those following it are literal 24-hour days. The Hebrew word translated day means one 24-hour period. Now, there are times in Scripture where the word day is used to represent a longer period of time, as in Isaiah 61.2, the day of vengeance. Here, day means a period of time in which God will exact judgment, the day of vengeance, talking about a period of time. However, every time day, that word day, is used to mean a period that's longer than 24 hours, it's very clear from the context. You understand what's being talked about. We don't have to guess. Anywhere the word day is used with a number, like in Genesis 1-5, one day, it always means a 24-hour day. Also, if you remember the fourth commandment, 
about keeping the Sabbath, the reason given for doing so is that God himself created in six days and rested one day. If the Israelites were to work six actual days and rest one day in following the example of God, then it makes sense that God actually created in six 24-hour days and rested in one. Follow this example. Whenever you read the Bible, and there is no reason not to go with the plain meaning of the text, then you should go with the plain meaning of the text. That's a good principle for Bible study. If the plain meaning of the text makes sense, if there's no reason not to go with it, then you should go with it. There was evening and there was morning on the first day, which was a 24-hour day. There are few places in the Old Testament that are explained as clearly in the New Testament as the first day of creation. So let me give you a couple of places in the New Testament that give us additional insight into what's happening on the first day. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. If you want to turn there, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. The Gospel of John. Here, just as Moses opens Genesis, speaking of God's Word, so John opens his Gospel with speaking of God's Word. John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Listen to this in light of what you have heard so far. It reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. John tells us that somehow the word God spoke is Jesus Christ. That's what it says. The word was with God. And the word was God. So with that understanding, think about this. In Genesis 1, God spoke light into being. In John 1, the word is the light. Jesus is God's word to us. He is also the light of God to us. If you receive light, you receive life. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. You will not overcome the darkness of sin on your own. If you go forth to battle the darkness, it's going to win every time. You need light outside of yourself. You need the life that only Jesus brings. John goes on to write in chapter 12, verse 46 of this gospel. He writes these words of Jesus. Jesus said, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. So there's the key to overcoming the darkness of your own sin. It's faith. But not just a belief about something, a specific belief about someone. Everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. You see, the true light Jesus Christ, he was plunged into the darkness. From 12 o'clock noon to 3 o'clock, darkness fell over the whole land. That's Mark 15, 33. Why? Well, because Jesus, the light, hung, dying, nailed to a cross, receiving in himself the darkness of your sin, the darkness of my sin. He became sin because he was judged for your sins and mine. 
the furious darkness enveloped him as the wrath of God fell with deadly force on the word who was with God in the beginning. In that moment of time, Jesus Christ was cut off from God. He was forsaken. And so that you never have to be. But that was not the end. Three days later, the Son of God rose into the glorious light of his Father. He who believes in him will not remain in darkness, as Jesus said, because Jesus will never again be overcome by that darkness. Jesus also said in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. The light is eternal life. And God invites you into it. You are called with a one-time decision to step out of the darkness and into the light by believing in the word that God spoke. That is believing in Jesus Christ. And if you've done that, you're called to keep following the light. By sticking close to the source, you will not stumble in the dark. But there's one more New Testament passage that we, we should not pass over on this matter of the first day of creation. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. Listen to this. Paul writes, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. God who said, light shall shine out of the darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. What is the Apostle Paul doing here? He's directly quoting Genesis 1, verse 3. And by doing so, he's saying, don't miss this. Don't miss this. The light that God spoke at creation is the same light that shines in your heart. The same light that brings the knowledge of Jesus Christ and what he has done for you. No man can look upon the light of God's glory and live. We've already read that. But every man and every woman and look upon the face of Jesus Christ. For in that face is reflected the glory of God. You want to gaze upon the light of God? Then gaze upon Jesus Christ. God's not hiding. He's revealed himself. He's revealed himself in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Look to Jesus in faith, and you will see the unseeable God. Look to Jesus in faith, and you will possess the true knowledge of God. Look to Jesus in faith, and the light that is outside of you will be the light that shines from within you. For within is where the creator of the universe comes to dwell. Invite that light in. Walk in that light. And just pray together. Father, I have in your life as many things that exposes, cleanses, and also searches. And so we ask as we prepare our hearts to go to this table in just a few moments, that you would search our hearts with your light. Father, thank you that you have provided a way that we can see you by looking to Jesus Christ. And may we be reminded of the light that is the life that comes through your word as we trust in you, Father. Help us this moment of searching to turn over to you whatever we're clinging to that we're afraid to bring into the light, but by doing so, to realize that we receive 
cleansing from whatever's holding us back, from whatever lies that we have believed, or they are exposed, or they shrivel and they die. Help us in these things, Father. We ask this in Jesus' name.